Forensic countermeasures are very common. This is a serious premeditated murder. And they had made mention of a dead body they had located in Ventura County, and this body was burned. If they had built a makeshift electric chair, it's all premeditated. In my experience, somebody doesn't go from zero to this kind of behavior in no time. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code best case. That's code best case. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor and writer-producer for CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today electronically is... Hi, everybody. It's Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor, Jim. I'm on XG Production East Coast assignment today, but that never stops me from calling in and being a bit of a pain to you, if I may say so. Yeah. It seems like that's your entire motivation in life, isn't it? (laughs) And speaking of that, we also have our very favorite guest host. Maureen O'Connell, retired FBI agent of 25 years. And I, too, love to harass Jim Clemente. Isn't that special? (laughs) But today in the studio, we also have a very special return guest. Larry Grajeda, Hawthorne Police, 29 years, retired. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming back, Larry. Larry, we know that you worked as a detective at the Hawthorne Police Department outside of the city of Los Angeles, and you told us before about a case that was really interesting and pretty intense and pretty disturbing. We hope you have another case to talk to us about today. Do you have one in mind? I do. Okay. And where in your career were you when this case came in? I was working the gang and metro unit back in 96. Okay, and how long into your career were you at that point? I started in 90 and promoted to Gang Metro in 93. Okay, and were you a detective at this point? I was a detective. Great. So what were you doing on the day that this case came in? I know it was September of 96, and we received a call from Ventura County detectives. And where? how far away is that from you? Oh, geez, that's uh, be at least an hour you know, hour and a half, depending on traffic now, about three hours. In LA traffic, Larry, you're probably talking about something that's two miles away, but an hour and a half. Absolutely. So I think we now have to take a plane. Yes. So Ventura calls you and what do they tell you? Well, actually they were talking to my uh, sergeant at that time and it was a sergeant and four detectives and they had made mention of a a dead body they had located in there. It was like off uh, a campsite in Ventura County. And this body was burned, charred, and it was um, it was wrapped around a, a dolly. 
Okay. And why does Ventura County call Hawthorne Police Department if they find a body in their jurisdiction? They actually, upon their investigation and then after completing that first day, found out that this gentleman was from the South Bay, Redondo, Hawthorne, Lawndale area. So he was a Hawthornian. I'm sure he no, was. I'm only yeah, I'm sure he was. And what did they tell you about the case? Well, with the little they had, I mean, that he was from our area, they felt that maybe we might know this guy, the victim, after they identified him. So and even though the body was badly burned, they were able to identify yeah. him? How and did this, they do this that? This was weeks later. I believe they, I'm not sure if they, I still don't know to this day, but I'm sure through forensics and all that stuff and, and toxicology and everything, all, everything we have out there, it certainly was through not through his ID. And they found out who this gentleman was, called us, and the call came through our department. I don't know if they called us first, but somehow we received a call from these detectives who did an outstanding job. And did you ever determine the cause of death in that case? Well, we were not the handling unit. We were yeah. not the handling uh, officer. But because what we later found out is all this happened in Hawthorne, and ultimately the body was located in Ventura County, there was actually three different crime scenes. Okay. Whoa, that's almost like a controlled delivery. Well, this Primary, was also, secondary, and tertiary crime yes. scenes. This was also deemed one of the most heinous malice and crimes that, per the judge, that they had ever seen. And really? wait till I walk you through it. All right, well, let's start walking. What, what did you find out in the beginning? So what we found out was the victim was kidnapped from his home at gunpoint by a person named Spencer. He had a friend who assisted him at gunpoint. And there's two reasons that we believe. The first reason was the victim had a prior dating relationship with a female. They had since broke up. Apparently, he continued to annoy her. So she asked these two if they can go kidnap him and just beat him. Okay. Then we have an informant who called me who said, that's not what happened, Larry. It was all meth related. And then this guy, the victim, apparently through the belief of the suspects, had stolen something from them or the female. So let's let's kidnap him, let's beat him and scare him, and then we'll be on our way. Well, that's not what happened. So they kidnapped this guy, take him to a house in the unincorporated area of Hawthorne, and they had a makeshift, like electric chair, mm. makeshift, tied him in there for the next four hours, shocked him, electric prod, shocking his head, shocking his entire body. They ultimately broke glass, shoved it in his mouth, oh. then broke a bottle, shoved it in his mouth, taped it shut. They glued his eyelid shut. And they actually, with one of those large staple guns, is they stapled his ears to boards. And I'm not talking about not beating. They're doing this over a four-hour span. So this is torture, epic Kidnap, torture. Kidnap, torture, murder. If they had built a, you know, a makeshift electric chair, it's all premeditated. So the next day, they steal a van, put his body in the back of the van, drive over to Ventura County, throw him out, douse him with gasoline, torch him, and then they're gone. So Maureen, I mean, torching the body sounds to me to be a forensic countermeasure. I mean, is that pretty common? Well, forensic countermeasures are very common. This obviously, first of all, when you talk about, like you said, having that electric chair already built, having a location where that chair was housed is a whole nother realm. Then driving all the way to Ventura, which probably took them two hours, an hour and 45 minutes, 
stealing a van to get there. I mean, these are all these. This is a serious, seriously premeditated murder and torture and murder. So you said earlier that the body was on a dolly, some kind dolly, and was it strapped to the dolly? And they just that's how they transported it, or something. To my knowledge, yes. Well, it's the only thing that makes sense because if you're ever trying to move a body, you either have to drag it on a blanket or put it on a dolly or have a bunch of people do it. And if there's only two of them, it just it just seems to make sense. Well, apparently uh, the female was forced to watch girlfriend. And apparently per an informant of mine through another person, she just continued to throw up the, through the entire ordeal and he would not allow her to leave. But. I'm confused because wasn't she the motivating factor for this whole thing? Yes. And uh, it was her belief that or what she wanted was just to be down. She had no clue that this guy was going to do that. Well, that's the her, problem. Her. Well, that's a problem with a love triangle. You know, you don't know how long that line is between the three points of the triangle. It sounds like the killer here was completely fixated on her. But again, you don't know. We don't know what her motivation was. And what do you think about this offender? Was he later identified? Yes. Okay. And had he had any history of doing any kind of abduction, torture, homicides? Well, this guy had a background, but again, meth, tweakers. Okay. You know, you get you get that combination. You don't know what they're capable of. So how did you track him down? How did you identify him and figure out who did this? So the detectives show up one day in our office. Kind of give it a brief, brief information from Ventura detectives. And basically, they just knew that we knew a lot of people in the Hawthorne area, Lawndale area, wanted to know if we knew anybody. The name didn't sound familiar, even though at that time we were working tweakers pretty hard, tweakers, people on meth, you know, known to steal, known to do every crazy thing. So we, they wanted us to reach out to our informants. So started reaching out to our, my informants, nothing. About a week and a half later, I get a call from the desk that there's somebody on the line for me, they forward the, the call to me. And it's an informant of mine that I hadn't seen in about a year. And the first thing he says is he's like, uh, hey, Grajeda, are you looking for a guy named Spencer? Well, because I had not seen this guy for a year, I don't want to write, jump into it and say, oh, yeah, I am, because maybe he's calling for him and maybe he's going to play the other hand. So I'm like, Spencer, no, what's, why? what's going on? Something like, something like good, you know? And he's like, hey, Grajeda, this guy apparently killed this dude and he tortured him. And I got it from a person that was there. So of course, my question was, were you there? And he's like, absolutely not. This is what they're telling me. I just want to know if you're looking for him. I'm like, why? Do you know where he's at? He's like, absolutely. I know exactly where he's hiding out. Wow. I said, where's he at? He goes there. You got about an hour because he's going to be leaving soon. But he's at this location, which would be on our south end of Hawthorne, just on the other side. And it would be an unincorporated area of Gardena Sheriff's. Goes, he's hiding out in a motel, but he always goes down to the liquor store about a block away. And he's probably going to leave real soon. He's wearing cowboy boots, jeans, a cowboy hat, all the good stuff. And he's with another guy. And this don't guy, tell me he's missing some teeth. No, he was actually, <laughs> he's actually straight up, I guess. He sold a lot of the meth, but didn't use as much as normal, you know, the normal tweakers do. So I told my boss and he's like, let's go. So we suit up real quick. We shoot down there. It's about a five minute drive and we're all in undercover cars. And when we're doing this, we got to have a game plan. This guy's a killer. What are we going to do? And, you know, our best thing was it's residential and businesses. If he walks down the street, it's wide open. 
how can we best handle it? We don't want them to get in the store. We want to go outside. So we're like, you know, we're just going to come in undercover cars. We're going to move on him and we're just going to just going to get on him. You know, surprise, element of surprise. We shoot out there and we're set up in about 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Of course, I'm still thinking like, ah, I wonder if, you know, I hope this is true. This guy never lied to me, but I haven't seen him in a year. Lo and behold, it must have been no more than 25 minutes. And I'm looking, I'm like, you know, I got a guy coming out, another guy, he's wearing a cowboy hat. Oh, it's him. And it's him. And he walks down the street, goes to the corner. He waits for the light. Get that. He could commit a murder, but he's going to wait for the light because he's not going to get a traffic you know, you know, violation, right? Oh, a walking. Yeah. Jay walking for yeah. me, man. Not today. He's got that cowboy hat going. It looks like he's going to the rodeo. So ready to go. We're on our frequency, uh, our main frequency. And he's at the light. He's down looking at his, you know, he's looking at something. And we just converge on him. And before he can look up, we just had him. And any move, of course, you know, we're locked and loaded, but he went straight like this, you know, hands up, turned around, cuffed him in custody, called the detectives, and they were just like elated, of course. So the other guy, you know, we didn't really do anything with him, got his information, you know, interviewed him. But yeah, so that was that was very gratifying. So even though the homicide happened in your jurisdiction, because the body was found in Ventura, homicide oh, didn't happen oh, in our I jurisdiction. We end up dying in Ventura. So it started okay. the kidnap our area, unincorporated area of Hawthorne, right. Sheriff's. The house where they did it or apparently committed all this four or five hours of torture, unincorporated area. Okay. But in Hawthorne, where they dumped the body and he ultimately died, Ventura County. So he was alive when they doused him with gasoline. Well, I could tell you this. The coroner believed that even after he was found, burnt and you know, no longer on fire, he still lived a couple hours after that. Oh, oh my God. Wow. Oh, that's horrifying. Now I understand why the judge made that proclamation that this was the most heinous abduction, torture, murder. Y'all know hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash best case. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job sites, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, to try ZipRecruiter for free, our listeners can go to ZipRecruiter.com slash best case. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-E-S-T-C-A-S-E. ZipRecruiter.com slash best case. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Y'all, as most of us have found out the hard way, getting into debt is easy, but getting out is hard, especially if your credit score isn't great. Thankfully now, there's Upstart.com, the revolutionary lending platform that knows you're more than just your credit score and offers smarter interest rates to help you pay off high-interest credit card debt. I wish they'd been around when I was in college. Upstart goes beyond the traditional credit score when assessing your credit worthiness. They actually reward you based on your education and job history in the form of a smarter rate. Upstart believes you're more than just your credit score. They believe in you. They make it fast, simple, and easy to check your rate. Since it's just a soft pull, it won't affect your credit score. 
The hard pull only happens if you accept your rate. The best part, once the loan is approved and accepted, most people get their funds the very next business day. The next day. See why Upstart is top ranked in their category with a 4.9 out of 5 rating on Trustpilot and hurry to upstart.com slash best case to find out how low your Upstart rate is. Checking your rate only takes a few minutes. That's upstart.com slash best case. So when you finally got this guy in custody and you ran his criminal history, what did you find? You know, I could tell right now, I wouldn't even begin to know what his criminal history was because right away we took him to our station, did the process, you know, didn't want to be the bad guy because we didn't want him to clam up if the Ventura County wanted to go there. So as much as we wanted to just give him every name of the book, took him into custody, processed him, called Ventura County, they came down and then they took the body and then went with their way. And they did a fantastic job. But this guy, later on, it was found out that, you know, parent type issues, user, kind of like a loner, this and that. But given the death penalty, um, but he he was, I don't know what year it was, but he was found dead in a cell uh, before that could happen. So So a happy uh, ending. Happy ending. Jim, I have a question for you. This case fascinates me. The brutality of what they did to this victim is, of course, shocking. But like you asked earlier, I wondered whether he had a prior history, because this does not seem to me to be something that an otherwise quote unquote normal person seems to me doesn't suddenly develop into someone who engages in this kind of elaborate torture. I mean, right. what does that say about it? Yeah, in my experience, somebody doesn't go from zero to this kind of behavior in no time. I believe this kind of offender had to develop over time and must have, at the very least, engaged in fantasies about doing this and then got to act them out because of the situation. In other words, he basically sublimated his desires to do these kind of heinous things in service to this woman's request. In other words, she wanted this guy to be beaten up and scared. Instead, they set up this elaborate torture situation, an electric chair and and board to staple his ears into and and then all that four hours of of just brutal torture all that was not necessary to commit the intended crime so that most likely is more ritualistic type behavior which satisfied an inner need for this particular offender he wanted to feel powerful maybe he wanted to threaten his girlfriend maybe he wanted to control her in the future and maybe he felt like the best way to do this is to force her to sit there and watch what he could do, see what he's capable of. Now, in in general, uh, that would probably fall into that whole coercive control category, but this goes far beyond what's normal. This is actually a veiled threat to her. And the fact that she reportedly was sick, throwing up the entire time, tells me that this torture must have been incredibly brutal and sustained. When Jim... One, one last question about this, and I, I hate to dwell on the terribly graphic details, but I'm, I guess I'm ex- especially shocked at this glass, broken glass in the mouth and then the broken bottle. That says something to me. I mean, that seems very, I don't know if you call that a signature, you're the profiler here, but that seems to me to be very specific and sort of designed 
or at least to have some motivation about someone talking or snitching or I don't know, maybe it's just humiliation. What do you think? Well, I think it goes beyond humiliation because when you, you obviously put tape over the mouth and there's crushed glass and sharp glass in the mouth, then this is going to make breathing very difficult and that person's going to panic. And it's just the sort of snowball effect of all these things going on at the same time. It's just, it's just horrific. And I, I don't want to really think about it, but then to drive him an hour to two hours away, pour gasoline on him and then burn him alive. And to have this poor victim being exposed like that, I mean, one of the most painful things that anybody can do is be burned to death. And I have certainly seen some extreme crimes and crime scenes in my career, but I have to say that this one ranks very high up near the top of the most brutal, vicious, horrific crime scenes that I've ever heard of. Larry, was was there a co-defendant charged? I mean, obviously, the woman, I would think, would have been a witness at a trial. You said that the offender got the death penalty. I assume people would have testified. Was there a co-defendant or did he do all this by himself? There was a co-defendant and he was given, uh, I believe it was 25 to life. So, Larry, this case, whew, pretty extremely brutal. But how do you categorize it in terms of your career? Is this the best case or worst case? Oh, it's the best case. I mean, unfortunately, as you said, and you're the expert, I mean, just brutal. Just, you know, can't even fathom somebody out there living to be able to do something like this. But there are. But for us to to get that suspect in custody, because who knows if he would have fled or maybe had time to do that to someone else. Yeah, I mean, you know? as I said before, I don't think this was the first time he did something like this. And had you not caught him, I don't think it would have been the last because this kind of behavior is so incredibly extreme that it takes a tremendous amount of work to get there for a human being to do this. And I believe that he must have been psychopathic. In other words, he has no capability of human connection, no empathy for other human beings, and literally sees other humans as something to use. So the fact that you were able to put this guy behind bars. I understand why it's the best case. Well, and, and the other on the other end of that is is again the informant. I mean, I'm sure he was afraid, but it was enough for him to say this guy needs to get caught and off the street, and he was willing to do that. And it ended up in our favor. But if you didn't have any of those informants out there. You know, who knows? Like you said, this may not have been the first, and it may not have been the last. But you know, we'll never know. You know, he may not have ever did that again, but you know as well as I do, that's just one of many. Right. That's right. Well, thank you, Larry, so much for sharing with us that case, that very disturbing case. And we'll have to put a trigger warning on this episode because I think people will be very disturbed hearing about it. But I think they should hear about it. They should understand that that's one of the motivating reasons that Francie and I started this podcast so we could share with people in the community the kinds of things that police officers and other investigators have to go through in order to keep people safe. And you hear about a lot of the bad things that people attribute to cops, but you rarely ever hear about how the bad things that the cops are exposed to affects those cops. And I can tell because I'm sitting here looking at your body movements, your posture, your facial expressions, that this really affected you. 
Can you share a little bit with our listeners about how that has affected you? Well, on one end, I think most of my career, I worked people on methamphetamine tweakers, but I also worked them on the other end where they were a very good source of information for me. It does not surprise me that somebody like this did this. Heavy user, maybe a dealer. Dillers love that power, wanted to show that power, create all that people to be scared and aware of him. Yeah, fear and control. Fear and control. And, you know, who knows? But when we took him into custody, you would have never known that that guy, the way he acted at that moment, was the same guy that did that. So what I'm saying is they're out there, but you can't see it. And, And something that's even important, Jim, is we all have families. And what we see when we're working on a daily basis and what's out there, that your family don't see, they may hear about it, but they're not, they're in their little bubble. You become afraid, if you will, for your kids, mm-hmm. wife, significant other, grandkids of, man, there are people out there that do this. So you become engulfed in, you will, and trying to keep them safe. Mm-hmm. And it becomes just a, a constant battle, 24 hours of, I know you don't know what's out there. But we've seen what's out there, and and they're out there. So so it's always on your mind, even yeah. after you retire. Right. You become jaded. You see the worst behavior that humans commit against each other, and you know what they're capable of. And the fact is that that blue line, what police officers protect the public from, it has a cost. And that cost, a lot of times, is that we look back behind us at the people we're trying to protect and just kind of shake our heads. They don't know, they don't understand, and sometimes they hate us for what we do, but that's because they don't really understand it. And we're hoping that with this podcast, that people understand a little bit better how much that blue line really protects them and how much they need it, and not to taint the hundreds of thousands of dedicated men and women who are the police forces of this country. Don't taint them with the few bad apples that have done bad things. Absolutely. And and for the most part, in my opinion, Jim, for the most part, Jim, 80%, if not more, of regular citizens, of the citizens, they know how important it is to not only have police out there, but to have their own police department. They know the difference of not having that. And what if we didn't have them? You have those bad apples, but I'll tell you, there's probably 1% bad apples that makes us as law enforcement go 10 steps forward and you get that one bad apple that hits the news and we drop back 25 steps back. Yeah. And then, we, but you know what, that's, what's going to happen. And you know what, you just got to keep going forward. So, so you do it, you do it for all the right reasons. You do it through all the bad things that have gone through in the last three, four decades, and you just keep moving forward. And you know why? Because that's what you do. Yeah, because you're a dedicated public servant. And Francie and I and Maureen here, thank you so much for doing what you do. And we appreciate you coming on to inform our listeners about this. And again, I know that this case really bothered you, and I hope that you feel a real sense of pride and accomplishment in the fact that you help get a really, really offensive, incredibly bad human being off the streets. Oh, thank you, Jim. All right. Francie, anything else? Uh, No, but I'm wondering, Jim, whether our listeners need from you a definition of the word human. Um, I 
I feel like you might be trying to say human, but that New York uh, thing is interfering. I have no idea what you're talking about, (laughs) Francie, but thank you very much for your two cents. (laughs) Well, thank you again, Larry, for being here and for telling us about this heinous case. And till next time, to our listeners, thank you for listening. Signing off, Best Case, Worst Case. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, LA. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Tsumba. And hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to do something about child sexual abuse, Darkness Delight can help. Did you know that more than 90% of the time children are sexually abused by someone they know? Jim, this isn't about stranger danger. It's about learning the true risks. Darkness to Light's training can help prevent, recognize, and react to child sexual abuse in your community. When you make the decision to get involved, kids can be protected. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org to take the training and learn more. That's d2l.org.